This is the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss, brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation, your external learning and development partner. Each week, we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who are subject matter experts and are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our topic today is how to be a better ally. Everyday actions to create inclusive, engaging workplaces. And joining us on the podcast is Karen Catlin. In 2014, Karen started the Twitter handle at Better Allies to share simple, actionable steps that anyone could take to make their workplaces more inclusive. That Twitter handle became the inspiration for three books. Better Allies, which we'll be discussing today, Everyday Actions to create inclusive, engaging workplaces, the Better Allies approach to hiring and belonging in healthcare. A self-professed public speaking geek, Karen is a sought-after and engaging presenter who has delivered talks at hundreds of conferences and corporate events. Her TEDx talk, Women in Tech, The Missing Force, explores the decline in gender diversity in tech, why it's a problem and what can be done about it. In addition to speaking herself, Karen is determined to change the ratio for who is on the stage giving keynotes and other presentations. In addition to speaking about her books, Karen coaches women to be stronger leaders and men to be better allies for members of all underrepresented groups. Her client roster includes Airbnb, DoorDash, Google, eBay and Intuit. Her writing on leadership has appeared in Inc., the Daily Beast, Fast Company, and The Muse. And she's consulted on articles for The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and The New York Times. Karen, you're very welcome to the Workplace Podcast. William, it is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. It is so good to speak to you. I I read this book. We were talking earlier about it. And in the title cover, it says, Everyday Action Suit create inclusive, engaging workplaces. I have had many people speak about diversity and inclusion on this podcast. And sometimes I ask about what are these actionable things that we can do, some takeaway things that we can do. And this book has it all. Sometimes I usually get 30 minutes or 30 seconds or maybe a minute or two on some actions. This has a complete book dedicated to that. So for anybody listening in, if you are interested in this area of diversity and inclusion, if you want to be a better ally, or just, as you said earlier, just a decent person, here are the things you can do. So, yeah. So tell me more about this book. So you started off the book talking about privilege, and this was a bit of an eye opener to me. And when you talked about uh, privilege, the P word, as you call it, Why is that important to understand what privilege means, especially the 50 different ways it can show up in the workplace? Yeah, yeah. So 
privilege, and the reason I actually call it the P word in the book is because um, privilege, we tend not to want to talk about it. We tend to get defensive as, if our privilege is pointed out because I think, and I've been there, I think we tend to go to this space of, wait a second, I'm not privileged. It, uh, I, I had to work hard to get where I am today we feel maybe like someone's saying we haven't had to work hard because we have privilege or because um, perhaps we're being lazy about things or we were born with that silver spoon in our mouth with um, a big trust fund or something backing us up so we haven't had to have some of the struggles others have had. Um, but that's not what privilege is all about. Privilege really is a set of unearned benefits that we get because we're part of a social group, because of our gender, definitely, in different industries and different workplaces, because of the color of our skin, because of our sexual orientation and identity. You know, those are kind of the top ways someone might have privilege, more privilege than others. Um, but as I did research for this book, William, I talked to so many people and started understanding there were some things that were a little more nuanced about privilege and things such as financial privilege. Um, financial privilege means you have money in the bank that mean, uh, that gives you some ability to take some risks with your career, perhaps. Yeah, I'm going to go for that stretch assignment or move internationally for my company or whatever it might be, because if I you know, if it's too risky and, you know, it doesn't work out, I'll find another job and I've got money to see me through. You know, that's kind of financial privilege. It shows up in other ways too, but that's one. Another is caregiving privilege or not caregiving privilege. You know, I, I have two children. I love my, my children. I love my family. But for where I am now, my children are adults. I don't have that responsibility to be a caregiver in a way I used to do when they were young. And that allows me to do different things with my job and my career, right? So that's another form of privilege. Then there's privilege about actually feeling safe when you're going maybe to a conference or an evening event to uh, meet other people and network. Um, there's privilege that you've actually gotten actionable feedback in a performance review, which not everyone gets, right? It was so rich and complex in some ways that I decided I wanted to put together this list of 50 ways you might have privilege. And that's in the book. It's also a free download on my website, betterallies.com. If you want to go check it out and just see what all these privileges are like, um, go there, take a look. And the reason, and this is what you asked, why is it even important to, to understand this? When we understand our privilege, we start understanding not everyone else has the same privilege we have. And that means they experience the workplace differently than us. And that's one of the first steps in being a better ally is understanding not at, my experience is not everybody's experience. And some people are going to be having different challenges than I have when I try to navigate these everyday situations. And I think it takes a lot of assumptions hours. It doesn't occur that sometimes you go, oh, just do this. And then if you have responsibilities for caregiving for elderly parents as well as young kids, yeah. or if you have a support network around you that you can go to that international conference, you know, and somebody is there to uh, as part of your support network to to uh, help with the caregiving, it's a very different yeah. type of privilege or so removes assumptions uh, there. Or, yeah. or, for example, we can overcome barriers. And then as I was going through this book, I was like, I never really knew how to be a better ally. There was no course I could take or whatever. 
And a lot of people are eager to do that, but they just don't know how. So you've you've specifically identified different roles people can play on that. Could you go through them with us, please? There are so many ways people can be allies and it's not one size fits all. And we don't have to do it all. Um, I think that's one thing I want to get across to people is being an ally is kind of a mindset and this lifelong journey that we can all be on together. And you don't have to do it all, though. You can start with a single step, just like any journey starts with. And so I did provide and describe seven different archetypes, seven different qualities or characteristics of different of allies. Uh, and um, just to get people realizing, oh, that's how I can be an ally, or that one feels most comfortable for me to do more of. There are things like, um, some people are simply scholars. Scholars mean you study, you do the work to understand this, you do the reading, you follow different people on social media, you get to know what this whole space is all about. That's fine if that's the kind of ally you want to be, maybe as a starting point. Um, there are also people who are amplifiers. Amplifiers are people who make sure that in the meeting, they are looking out for others and, and saying, you know, hey, I really like the point that Anne just made. Let's have, you know, let's let's talk a little bit more about that one. That's an amplifier or someone who will go on social media and share um, a, an article that a woman of color just wrote, for example, and saying how much they learned from it. Um, so that's an amplifier. There are some people who are advocates kind of behind the scene, um, advocating for people, making sure they're getting invited to key meetings or being considered for stretch assignments where they can learn something new. Um, so again, um, just there's so many different opportunities to be allies every day. That's my, my premise is every day we can be better allies. Um, and there's, it's not one size fits all. Yeah, and I, I liked how you had that sponsor there. You had the champion and you had the upstander, which is the opposite to a, a bystander. Just a bit on the sponsor and the champion. So if I am a, a senior leader coming in, there's a, a bit of responsibility with the authority and power that I have to be a bit more of a sponsor and a champion. How might I do that? I'll say it's so important for senior leaders to actually get to know talent in their organizations, mm. talent that is underrepresented for, you know, however you want to define that identity. Yeah. Um, because if they don't get to know the talent, how can they know to sponsor them? Sponsoring means talking about them in rooms they're not even in, um, uh, whether that's a calibration meeting for promotions across an organization or something else. It's, it's, it's that kind of sponsorship. So it's step one is really getting to know the talent so that you can use some of your social capital, your credibility to talk about them and sing their praises. I think that's a good goal for any yeah. senior leader. And, and then for a champion, then it's it's really to kind of promote the cause or to promote uh, whatever that's going on uh, there. And that brings us then to the upstander. So right before we said about the podcast, I spoke about uh, uh, my two sons, how they two separate incidents a couple of weeks apart. And it's funny, I was reading the book and. If I'm honest, I'm not sure if myself, my wife had any influence over this, but they were definitely took action where in a, in a racist incident, they they stood up or they were upstanding in that. So you can tell me, what, what is an upstander? How might that, what might that look like in the workplace? Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to hear about 
that that uh, both of your sons have been stepping up, being those upstanders. Yeah, it is the opposite of the bystander. The bystander might notice something happening, um, like an offensive comment, a slightly off-color joke. Maybe no one even within earshot might be offended by it, but they don't say anything. They just are happy with it just going on, or maybe they just don't feel comfortable with um, the situation to say anything. They are bystanders. Uh, But here's the thing. We need people to be upstanders because if we're all bystanders, that means we're all happy with the status quo. We are complicit with how things are going on and we're not interested in making change. So we do need to be those upstanders. So what does that mean? So in a um, situation, let's say someone just makes um, an, I'm gonna say just a slightly offensive joke because that happens in workplaces. It may not be blatant, but it could be just slightly offensive to someone. Um, And I've been there. Uh, You know, you kind of like, (laughs) like laugh a little bit. You don't, yeah, maybe you don't really Uh, contribute to the laughter, but you're just kind of smiling. You don't really know what to say. Better is to do something like this. Speak up and say, I don't get the joke. Can you explain it to me? Right. And by doing that, you chances are the person's like, oh, what do you mean you don't get it? You know, and and it sort of forces them to confront the issue, the why it's offensive, because they start maybe trying to dig a hole that they can't get out of. And chances are they're just going to be like, oh, let's just drop it. And the conversation will move on. And you have done an upstanding kind of thing. You've spoken up against that. And that person hopefully is going to get the message that that kind of behavior is not welcome. Um, another thing you can do is um, something which... Um, It depends, like, let's say it's a new person who's joined your team or a work group or something like that. And again, they're doing something that really doesn't feel right. It's um, offensive, racist, um, uh, misogynistic, whatever. Another thing you can do is is use this phrase. And I always like phrases that I can pull out of my back pocket, I call it, because in the moment, we might not know what to say because we're not practiced at this. So I love having these phrases. So another phrase we can use is something like, um, you know, hey, we don't do that here. Like just reinforce the values or cultural norms of a more inclusive environment with that phrase, like, hey, we don't do that here. Um, and you can pull that one out too. Yeah, I'll leave it there. There are a few more in the book, but uh, those are some of my favorites. There are plenty more. And it's it's something I heard my son actually said, no, I, I had no influence over this. Not cool. That was it. And that's in your book. And this is the thing is, is that, that this is not... For sometimes it's it's innate in us and for others, then we have to learn this and learn the language. And that's the really beauty about this book. And and I like that you speak about, you know, it's okay to be an imperfect ally. It's just a it's always about that sense of learning. And this is what the whole podcast is about, is about learning that. So that imperfect ally, tell me a little bit more about that, because it is about listening and learning, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. And realizing Again, a mindset shift of it's okay to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I didn't know that yet. I haven't learned that yet, whatever. Um, Because you were going to make mistakes on this journey to be a better ally. I guarantee it. And William, even with the fact that like I have written three books on this, I have a vibrant newsletter I share every week. I speak about this at hundreds of events. this topic is so complex. I make mistakes too. I I, I, I I make them all the time. And I 
am getting very comfortable admitting that, even though I yeah. um, I wish I, I weren't in that situation. But I do make mistakes. Um, hey, one I'll share with you is um, so a lot of it's about my language. I'm trying my best to retire phrases that I've learned are no longer inclusive to use more inclusive language. Um, and one example of that is I was um, writing about Juneteenth. And in the States, Juneteenth is a holiday on June 19th. And it's when the last basically area of our country that um, was finally liberated from slavery when the um, when people learned that we no longer had and this is you know over a hundred years ago, um, and I talked about the the people who you know the slaves finally learned that they were no longer slaves, and someone pointed out it's like Karen calling people slaves really puts all of their identity to that thing that happened to them. It's better to say the formerly enslaved people because it was more of an action that happened to them. So not call them the slaves, but say this is something that happened to them. Very small shift, but see how inclusive that is, the formerly enslaved people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like one thing, it's like, okay, I now know that. And I, if, there's a quote by the poet Maya Angelou, who says, you know, we do the best we can until we know better. And then when we know better, we do better. And that is is my approach with all of this. It's like, I, um, I learn from the mistakes I make and, I do better moving forward. Um, another thing I'll share about making mistakes, because I do want to make people comfortable with, with making these mistakes, is I share the mistakes I make in my newsletter. When I do make a mistake, I talk about it. And um, in fact, I'm working on my newsletter for this week, and I'm going to share a mistake in that. Um, my previous newsletter, I talked about why we should coach women to avoid glue work glue work being the housework that i talk about in my book the, like taking the notes for a meeting when it's not anyone's job or collecting money for a teammate's uh, baby shower for to, to get a baby gift or um ordering some you know breakfast goodies for uh for an early morning meeting when it's not your job like this is all the stuff that happens for the health of an organization or a team the morale but what happens is it tends to go to women and women of color, all of these things, which really are non-promotable tasks, unrewarded tasks, you know, and so forth. They don't really lead to career growth. So in my last newsletter, I talked about the importance of coaching women to not do this work because it doesn't lead to career growth. And instead, point it out and coach them out. Here's some opportunities you might want to pursue that will lead to career growth. And I got so much feedback from from that suggestion. I thought it was pretty good when I put it in my newsletter. But the feedback I got was, wait a second, Karen, not everyone is interested in career growth. Some people are going to be happy with where they are in their in their role um, because of other things going on in their life and other uh, commitments they have, or they're just happy with that role. Not everyone has this mindset of getting to the C-suite. Um, so Karen, maybe it should be be intentional about taking on glue work, given your career goals. Um, other people pointed out, hey, wait a second, Some, sometimes this glue work can really help a career because you might be meeting people in another part of your organization. If you volunteer on some committee to do something, you know, a site council to to figure out new, um, I don't know, new furniture or new ways to spend the fund budget or whatever. Yeah. You're going to be meeting different people across the organization. And that may lead to you attracting some sponsors who can advocate for you moving around. 
So um, I learned from that and I'll put it all in my newsletter this week, what I've learned. I'll summarize that and put it in there. I, this page itself, so it's on page 109 and it's understanding the office housework. And sometimes for men listening in, this may be an inconvenient truth uh, is, is, is the note that I made here. Now, you know, I've made lots of notes here. So again, it's about tracking down who people who are late for the, the meeting, who's doing the scheduling, the follow up. But even uh, this is cleaning whiteboards and, and coffee mugs or ordering food and making reservations. When you look around in your office, if you're someone listening in, who's doing that? You know, is the same that? people or, you know, is the same gender doing it or all that type of stuff? I think it's a really important part in the book. So for me, it was like, oh, I used to have a blind spot to this until it started being pointed out to me for people yeah. kind of going, they knew it was a blind spot, you know. Yeah. And, and for me, um, I think it's different things like that, that your newsletter uh, promotes is actually creating that awareness. And again, you were talking about that learning piece earlier on is, is that imperfect ally language is really important. And sometimes people use language about themselves. And a lovely note that you made in the book is you checked it to say, is it okay if I use that language as well? And we're going, no, no, that's, that's for us. So really important. Yeah. Especially like, um, and again, um, in Ireland, it may be different than in the States, but like the the word I'll I'll share with you that often is fine for a group to use is, is ladies, a group of women will come like it's the ladies lunch or something like that. We might say something like that or girls weekend away. Um, And those phrases are fine for us to use as a group because we are reclaiming them. We're having some identity with that, but they're um, somewhat patronizing um, or childish for, you know, if you were in a workplace to call a group of women, your colleagues, Hey, is this the girl's hour? You know, it's like, that's patronizing and, um, and childish. So um, yeah, just because you hear somebody else using a phrase doesn't mean you get to use it. And of course, there are racial racialized words, too, that we hear in rap songs, for example, that there's no way we should use them, even though we are hearing um, black rap artists use them in their their songs. They're reclaiming them. They are finding power from those those words, but we should not be using them. And then even from your learnings, from your keynotes or your presentations that you talk about, hey, guys. You know, it, 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 there's something within that. Would you tell our, our listeners more about that? There's quality alternatives and why I should use an alter- alternative. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the word guys. Oh, my gosh. So growing up, I always used that phrase. Hey, guys, let's. It was gender neutral to me. It was just a way of reaching out. Um, same thing for you. I, I You're shaking your head. Yes. Um, it's, it's one of those phrases that whatever. But so many people today I'm hearing do not find that inclusive. They don't feel they're included in a group because they are a woman or they are gender binary or gender fluid. And they're just like, I don't feel like a guy. And in my keynotes, I love sharing a photo um, that I found online of just a men's room. Just think about the sign on a men's room door and that logo of a man and the word underneath it for on the restroom door says guys. Okay. And I always say like, if you were a woman or a non-binary person and you were looking for a restroom to use, would you go through that door? And of course the answer is like, 
no, unless my need was really urgent, right? And I get that. But like, chances are you would look for another door. And that step visual, I think it helps so many people realize, yeah, guys maybe is not the gender neutral term I used to think it was. And it's hard to change. It's so hard. Um, but I recommend people like tell your family or people that, you know, you tend to hang out with that. I don't want to use that word anymore. So if I do like wave or something at me so that I remember that I've just used it and use something else instead. In the American South, people have it so easy because there's this phrase, y'all. Hey, y'all. They just, it, it just is such a great inclusive term. I am not from the South in America. I'm here and in the, in the States. And so I, instead I, I use folks, Hey folks. And that feels good to me. Um, so William, do you have a, an alternative that you can use? I borrow directly from your book. Hello, everybody. Everybody. Yes. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Perfect. <laughs> I think I don't think y'all is going to fly in Ireland, especially from a Galway man. Uh, definitely, definitely wouldn't come across. I don't have that southern uh, drawl to make it look uh, credible. Yeah, I uh, nor me. And um, so that's why there are. But the, the English language is so rich. There are so many alternatives we can choose. So I'm glad you found one that works for you. And and you have it in the book. And, and again, when you talk about language and phrases, then there's another really important part of the book. And it was about the red flag phrases that I might need to watch out for in my team or in my organization. So if I'm part of a committee or if I'm here and senior people use these, what are the ones that are really dangerous and what are the implications? Yeah, so... um. I'll definitely mention one or two, like just to answer your question. Let's see. Um, one is you're in a, on a hiring committee discussing a candidate and someone says, you know, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I just don't think they'd be a culture fit. Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. So, and William here, here again, like I used to think that was just fine. I remember working on a team probably 20 years ago and the engineering manager on this team had literally said, like, when we hire people and interview people, we are looking for 50% technical skills we're looking, you know, we need, and 50% is culture fit. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. We are a tight team. We work hard. We work long hours. Of course, we need someone who's got to fit in here. I bought it, and I was in, and I interviewed people along those lines. But I have since learned, here's that here's that whole thing again, like, we, when we know better, we do better. I since learned that that is often code for bias, bias that they aren't like us, they're different from us. Maybe they don't remind me of my younger self. Um, and people don't want to actually say those words. They're, you know, they're different. And instead, so they just say they, they wouldn't be a culture fit. So if you ever hear that red flag of they wouldn't be a culture fit here, flip it around and say something, be an upstander and say something like, hey, I think they would be a culture ad they would bring something to our culture that we don't have today. And that's going to help us deliver on our business goals, our quarterly objectives, whatever it might be. I think they'd be a culture ad. I love that culture ad. Uh, I'm looking at um, some of the, the red flag phrases here, which, you know, I don't want to lower the bar. You know, they're so <laughs> articulate, you know, in a, you know, yeah. in a patronizing way, you know, um, Somebody referring to Annie, can you take notes? These are things that are red flags yeah. to go. If I'm in interview, okay. Yes. What am I letting yeah. myself in for? 
Yep. Can, can we talk about that articulate one? You're so articulate. This one is a surprise to many people that I speak with. Wait a second. Isn't calling someone articulate a compliment? Like, why is that a bad thing to say, Karen? And what I have learned is that many Black people in particular don't think it's a compliment because when you call a Black person articulate, like you're so articulate, it's like, well, who are you comparing me to, first of all? And secondly, why would you think I wouldn't be articulate, especially in our workplaces where many of us are in white collar jobs where people are educated and professional? uh, I should avoid that word because that's steeped in... um, white um, kind of norm. Anyway, um, so, but, but we're, we're talking about people who have been hired to do a job in a, many, many of us are in office settings. And it's like, why, why would you think they wouldn't be articulate? So here's another thing that we can do if we want to give people feedback. Like if you hear someone calling a colleague, you know, they were so articulate when they presented to the C-suite. Um, speak up and here's what you can do. My One of my favorite techniques, another one in the book is to seek common ground and then educate. Seek common ground with someone and say, you know, I used to think it was fine, a compliment to pay someone when we said they were articulate. I used to think that that's the common ground, right? I used to think it was fine to say that, but I have since learned that many Black people do not think it's a compliment because, and it's all the reasons I just shared. So that's a great way to give anyone feedback. When you hear someone say something you don't think is inclusive, speak up with that. You know, I th- I used to think it was fine to do that or say that, or yeah. used to think that was a compliment, but I've since learned. Yeah. And something else that's come into our vernacular of later of vocabulary is this term microaggressions. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's that's really come about in the last couple of years. So, so what's what's your understanding of microaggressions, and how might we combat against those? Yeah. So, I mean, micro means small, and we know what aggressions mean, right? So, these are small aggressions, small things that, if they happened only once to someone, they wouldn't be a big deal. But they tend not to happen only once to people who are underrepresented. They build up over time. It's like that classic statement of, you know, death by a thousand cuts. Um, uh, they they do build up over time. And um, I can't remember if this is in my book or if I have used it in my newsletter, but someone compared it to like getting, um, having having your toe stepped on, you know, on the subway or on a train. You know, if it happens once, you know, someone steps on your toe, it's like, it's always an accident. You, you're like, not yeah. a big deal, whatever. They probably apologize. You're like, it's not a big deal. But if it happens to you every day, it starts to be like, yep, what, what's going on? Why are my toes so easy to step on or what, what's going on here? And the same type of thing can happen in our workplaces. Um, it's like, yep, once again, I'm not invited to go to lunch with my colleagues. Once again, I'm interrupted when I bring up some ideas. Once again, John down, down, the, you know, down the hall gets credit for the idea I raised in the meeting last week. You know, once again, this is happening. And um, over time, what happens is we're, you know, if, if it continues to have like, why do I even put myself in that situation? Why do I even bother bringing up an idea? Why do I even bother trying to speak up in a meeting? Why do I even bother? And instead we pull back, we don't do our best work and perhaps we're look, starting to look for another job, right? So we do wanna look out for microaggressions, be aware of them. I mean, the book, my book is full of examples of what that looks like. And again, what we can do when we spot them, once we, we're more aware that they're happening. 
And these are very real and genuine. Sometimes people say, well, this is all in your head. Like, where are you really from is another microaggression. And and with your permission, um, I'm going to quote um, from your book here. And I think this is from Columbia University psychology professor, uh, Daryl Wing Sue. Is it okay if I read out the the, the definition of microaggression? Yes. Microaggressions are, thank you, microaggressions are the everyday verbal, nonverbal and environmental slights, snubs or insults, whether intentional or unintentional, which communicate hostile derogatory or negative messages to targeted persons based solely upon their marginalized group membership. Now, it's a mouthful, yet it's so succinct and it's clear, which I really love about that. In many cases, these hidden messages may invalidate the group identity or their experiential reality of target persons, demean them on a personal or group level, communicate they are lesser human beings, which I think is really important, and suggest they do not belong with the majority group, threaten, intimidate, or relegate them to inferior status and treatment. It's a brilliant book, I have to say, for for all these little nuggets that you have in it. And, you know, then as a man, another inconvenient truth is is how we how we network and how we sponsor people and champion people. And I might go into networking in 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 a minute. Um and y- you talk about the Mike Pence rule. So this is something our listeners may not be sure of. Why why does why does Mike Pence get a term all to himself? Yeah, yeah. Well, he he actually shares it with Billy Graham, I believe. Uh, Billy Graham, who's an evangelical preacher. Um, the Mike Pence rule, though. Mike Pence, when he was vice president of the United States, it was shared that he said his wife does not want him to have dinner meetings with people of the opposite. Sorry, I'm going to fix myself there. Don't cut this from the podcast. I was about to say the opposite sex. There is no opposite sex because gender is this spectrum. Um, so of of sure men, women, non-binary, gender fluid people, I want to acknowledge that. So I'm trying to not say opposite sex anymore, even though it just, as you saw, it just came out, it just heard. Um, A great so catch, by up. the way. <laughs> oh, God. Thank you. Thank you. But let me back up. So there, they have this rule in the Pence household that he cannot have dinner with someone of a different gender than him um, because his wife gets jealous. And that's the Mike Pence rule. Now, what happens and the Mike Pence rule, that's one way to describe it. It also shows up in sort of that Me Too concern. Um, the Me Too movement shown a light on the fact that a lot of people are harassed in such situations. And as a result, um, many men start to pull back from mentoring relationships or networking kind of relationships because they didn't want to be accused of Me Too situations. When in reality, accusing someone of harassment is a big deal. It's such a small percentage, it's been studied, it's such a small percentage of the number of reports of harassment that, or worse, sexual um, uh, misconduct. It's such a small percentage that someone would make this up and accuse someone who didn't do it, that guys, if guys, literally guys, guys, if you have, you really are just are, You have nothing to worry about if you are acting appropriately. So don't pull back from these kind of mentoring relationships. Don't pull back from having dinner meetings or breakfast meetings with people of different genders. Um, Don't do it because 
when you don't have these relationships, that means you are building a very much a network of people who are just like you. They're called just like me networks. They are homogenous. They are what leads to groupthink. They don't enrich what you are doing and they don't allow you to meet talent that will help you deliver on business goals, right? So we want to be consciously diversifying our network and looking for opportunities to network with people who are different from us. Um, I'll share with you too, a few years ago in San Francisco where I live, I was leading a workshop for an entire business unit at a tech company. And it was on how to be better allies. And this business unit, the general manager of the business unit was there and about 50 of his employees. And when I was talking about the importance of diversifying a network, he actually spoke up and he said, wait a second, Karen, my wife gets jealous when I have a work dinner with a, a woman colleague. How should I handle that? And I was like, oh my gosh, this is real. And I hadn't even mentioned Mike Pence or anything. I was just talking about the importance of diversifying our network. And I must admit in the moment, the snarky part of my brain was like, you need to go to marriage counseling, like couple counseling here. This is not an allyship thing. You've got to sort that out with your wife. Um, but I wanted to be respectful and I wanted to get paid because he was paying the bill. Um, so I, um, I simply said, you know, I think that you have a responsibility to be meeting with people of all genders in your, in your team, in your company, in your industry. And so perhaps from now on, you only have breakfast meetings. Maybe your wife would be comfortable with that. Or every time you have a dinner meeting, make sure there are at least two people there. Never have one-on-one -on -one dinner meetings again, even if it's with a man. Um, maybe that will help your wife. Now, I don't know. I never will know if he followed my advice. But I hope that every single person who reported to him in that business unit who was in the room that day for the workshop started holding him accountable in a different way. And it really is sometimes what prevents us from being an ally is that we're not sure or we're insecure in some way or somebody at home is insecure. And that's what we need to do is 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 maybe figure out different ways around that. So a bit like what you're saying, well, what's the safe option here is have all the people in the room and it's removing those barriers. And that's what allyship is all about. So sometimes I need to remove the barriers for myself. It's like, say, let's go for a breakfast meeting. And that brings me then to networking then. So you speak uh, the about the importance of networking and its importance for allies to mentor. And then you give us this whole notion of a convenience network. Can you talk us through that? So why is networking important and what is a convenience network? Yeah, so networking is important. In some ways, I just touched on some of these things, but it's Think about how we leverage our networks. Like, let's just start there. We leverage our networks to hire people, right? We're constantly looking for, you know, in our network to, when we have an open position. We leverage our networks when we're looking for a job ourselves. We leverage our networks when we are doing any kind of succession planning or reorganizations or talent calibration meetings. We leverage our networks for when we are recommending people for any kind of spot bonus um, uh, or, or kudo or thank you or something, right? Um, we're leveraging our networks when we're trying to form a working group to solve some problem that probably is high profile, right? And if our networks are full of people just like us, we are going to be offering those opportunities that I just went through to people just like us. And that's just going to lead to more homogeneity. If we have a homogenous network, we're going to have, we're going to hire more homogeneity. We're going to offer opportunities to more homogeneity. And this, I think, is what 
me, you know, we can call the old boys network. It's, um, it's the way that uh, men for a long time have been getting ahead because of their relationships with other men in positions of power. And so I do encourage people not to have that kind of convenience network of it's just like it forms naturally. It's just like, here's what it is. Let's actually work very thoughtfully, mindfully, consciously to make sure we have a diverse network. Um, and I'm sharing all of this with the, and I share this in the book, like when I left my my executive level job in tech and started to work as a leadership coach, I knew I needed to get out and network um, to build up my client roster and so forth. But I really was like networking with people I wanted to hang out with, which were other women in tech. And those were my target clients, but they weren't necessarily the decision makers who could bring me in to become a, a leadership coach for a group of people at a company or um, to add recommend me for um, to their organizational development partner who was looking to put a, a list of names of coaches together, right? Those chances are those were people who were more male executives in this industry. And so like, I blew it. Like I, I made some mistakes there. Um, and because I was hanging, I, I was networking with people I wanted to be hanging out with. And I and, think that's natural. And that's the beauty about even this podcast is I get to network with you and, and discover, you know, uh, different insights there. And if I may share with to our listeners that sometimes when I coach people, especially they have this uh, allergy to networking, you know, sometimes I break it down that you're expanding your net for more opportunities or more diversity. And also it takes work. So it isn't being convenienced, sit beside the coffee and just approaching one person it is about making that effort or that work to go to someone that mightn't be uh, like you or might be very different to you. And it's approaching that person with the intention to learn more or to listen to what they want. And that's that's that whole Adam Grant uh, piece, isn't it? That give and take that we're offering something. And it's great that your, your book uh, mentions that as well. There's one particular insight and I talk about inconvenient truth to men and this is man interruptions and yeah. this is something that when I first started my journey into allyship especially for um, female leadership and, and for gender equality this was something that I had known was an issue till it was pointed out to me and then I went oh how many times do you think I've done that in meetings so can you tell me what what is man interruptions? Yeah, yeah, the man interruption. Some other clever person came up with that phrase. I've just used it. Um, the man interruption is with a man interrupts a woman. And, um, it, you know, interruptions can happen by any gender towards another gender. Like it, it, interruptions aren't gendered per se, but there's research showing that men tend to interrupt women more than the other way around. In fact, there was research of our United States Supreme Court and a researcher studied 12 years of their hearings and found that women on average were um, were interrupted four times. No, sorry, I'm gonna get this. I think, I think I got this right. They were interrupted on average four times more than the men, the justices themselves. And they only did the interruptions themselves like 3% of the time, tiny amount. And I don't know if it is, it's just culturally acceptable for men to speak over women than the other way around, or it's that men, cisgender men who are born male at birth have longer vocal cords, which means that they 
can have deeper voices that project better. And so it's easier for them to interrupt. Um, it may be that women have been trained also to use qualifying phrases when we start to talk, such as, well, excuse me, I think I have a relevant point here. Do you mind if I say something? Like something like that. Um, and we make it easy to interrupt. But regardless of the reason and regardless of who is being interrupted, when interruptions happen, people, again, it's a microaggression. We step back from the conversation. We think, why do I even bother over time? Um, and of course, if we're trying to run an effective meeting, we're not really getting all of the feedback, the voices, the um, the ideas to be generated in that meeting because some people are going to dominate the conversation, going to interrupt uh, others, and, um, and that's not a, an effective meeting. And again, use some very useful phrases that I would have picked up along the way. So, for example, if somebody interrupted you, I would might if I was a fellow team member, I might say Karen was speaking. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's a different way right. to to say, listen, you're you're interrupting here. Yes, exactly. Um, Or I'd like to hear Karen finish what she was saying. You know, something respectful. You don't have to call someone, hey, you are a man interrupting. Like that's not going to be health, healthy or helpful, yeah. right? Instead, just redirect the conversation. Um, if you're in person too, you can retain eye contact with the person who was interrupted and that can be an effective approach as well. I was working with a group before and there was one individual female there and this came up in conversation. Though I think I brought it up in fairness. And one of the people there who was a repeat offender had a complete blind spot to this. And they were delighted to hear this term, man interruption. It wasn't their intention. And they were horrified then to go, no, sorry, finish. You know, so I think it is something to do about bringing that awareness, that feedback there. And, it, you know, it was unintentional from their point of view. And you could see on their face when they got the feedback, their face just dropped, kind of yeah. going. And it's a learned behavior that they might have had over years, whether it's their family environment or whatever, maybe, maybe right. weren't. Uh, aware of that and and another piece from the book is in the 2020 vice presidential debate Mike Pence tried to cut off Kamala Harris mid-sentence now this is in your book and she calmly replied replied Mr. Vice President I'm speaking I love that so for any uh, of our female uh, leaders listening in what a wonderful way to to do that um and then you, you you obviously quote Deborah Tannen, uh, the professor of linguistics. So I think uh, if anybody knows Deborah Tannen's work, it's really good. So again, another great insight from your book. And this brings us to the whole notion of language. So we mentioned language several times here. You've mentioned pronouns like cisgender. Um, at the start of your book, you're very clear on using BIPOC, you know, all of these different terms. And the question I'd say is, well, why does language matter? Mike, people have been kind of going, oh, let's let's just do what we always did. Like, what difference does it make if I was, you know, cynical about this? What, what yeah. difference does it make? Well, if you're really cynical, I don't know if I can convince you. Um, I must admit, like, and and you're not. I'm just saying yeah. I. I I, I, I'm looking at the, you know, call it middle 80%, you know, there's the top 10% who already know all this stuff and they know how to be allies and they're doing yeah. that. And there's the bottom or the other 10%, I should be a little more respectful of the other 10% at the other end, which like, I don't care. I'm here to do a job. Let me just do my work, whatever. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people are in the middle. Um, and there are the people I'm talking about who are hungry for ideas, who want to learn 
how to be better allies and are looking for some suggestions. So, um, so, but if with, with language, we have to admit and acknowledge that language shifts all the time. It is part of what language is. It shifts with cultural changes and norms and, um, and, and societal changes. And what used to be inclusive may not be inclusive anymore. And why not, with just the language we use, why not take every step we can just to make sure that we are evolving our language to be more inclusive? Um, it, in some ways, I think it's some it's a, one of the more simple things to do, even though it means retraining us and having new habits and, and so forth. I think it's one of the simpler things because it is something that we can do ourselves every day. We can we can be more mindful about our language, um, and that might be sharing our pronouns um, in our Zoom. It may be putting uh, pronouns. You know, even if if we go to a conference and even if there aren't pronoun badges to put on our lanyard, we could write them on with a Sharpie or something like that. Um, you know, that that certainly is one. Put it in our email signature. That's an easy thing to do. Um, I can't tell you how many times I quote somebody in my newsletter or in my books. And I actually have to like click through on their bio and maybe a couple like do some work to figure out what pronouns they use. Um, but I do that because I don't want to misgender someone. Uh, so, so I think it is important to do that. Um, and let me tell you, for someone who uses a pronoun that maybe doesn't um, naturally associate with their first name, um, you know, whatever uh, for whatever norm that is, and you use their correct pronoun, it goes miles. Mm. It is means so much to someone to realize that you have done that work. You are um, adjusting your behavior. Now, that said, I will tell you, I have trouble with remembering to use they, them pronouns for a single person. I have trouble remembering that. Um, I have a son who has a roommate who goes by they, them pronouns, and their first name is something that I consider to be a feminine name. So I'm constantly saying she or her when I refer to that roommate, I do it. And my son just, you know, will start using they and the, yeah, they, they, they are going, you know, mm -hmm. here for the weekend. He'll just use the right one as a subtle way to correct me and I'll apologize and just use they in my next sentence. Um, so yeah. when we do, if you're like me and you're having trouble with they, them yeah. singular pronouns, um, the best thing to do is not make a big deal out of it. It's very tempting, William. And I don't know if you're there, but it's tempting for me to start saying, sorry, I'm N years old. I've had trouble with this. I've never had to do this before. It's just hard. Like I just, I'm, I know it's important, but and we start making this huge deal out of it. Instead, it's better to just apologize and use the right, uh, right pronoun moving forward. Don't make and a I, big deal out of it. Yeah. There's something there. So part of my, journey of being an ally was sometimes I was over eager to, to help, you know, and then you're making a big deal of something that shouldn't have been a big deal, you know. So I think there's something about that. What you're saying is just just pick up the cues uh, and go with it, you know, and there's there's something uh, about that as well. And again, if, if somebody is is making the effort, you know, is to reassure them as well. Thank you very much. And just kind of move on yeah. quite quickly, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. And pledge to do better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I love that uh, Maya Angelou quote. Can you can 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 you uh, tell us that again? Yes, we do the best we can until we know better, and when we know better, we do better. I hope I got that completely right. It's close enough, though. It's close enough for me. And with that, we're coming to the end of the podcast. 
So I'd like to give you this opportunity now to uh, let you talk to our listeners. If they were to find more about you, Karen, and about the really sterling work that you do, how might they do so? Thank you. Well, I recommend heading to betterallies.com. That's the website I use for um, all the resources I provide around my books, my speaking, and so forth. And I do love speaking about this topic. It is tough. It's complex, um, but I love challenging questions and and you know breaking it down and really talking about what we can do, the actions we can take. And we cover a lot today. I really appreciate that you have pulled out and teased out so many of these um, topics for us to discuss. So please head to betterallies.com and please consider signing up for my free newsletter. It is free. I send it out every Friday and it's called Five Ally Actions. I do a roundup of things I've learned during the course of the week on how to be a better ally. And um, and as I mentioned before, the mistakes I make, I put those in there too so that we can all be learning together. So it's, um, you know, being a, an ally is changing our behavior. It's learning new things to do. It's building up new habits. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to have kind of a little bit of a regular reminder of things we could be doing. And that's why I send this out every Friday. It's like, you don't have to do them all, but maybe there's one you might incorporate into how you're going to show up the following week so that you can be a better ally. And with that, that's all we have time for today. Karen, thank you so much for joining the Workplace Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss. Our special thanks to this episode's guest for sharing their expertise with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please download and share it. For updates on future episodes and to get in contact with us about any workplace topics, please follow Yellowwood on LinkedIn and Twitter at Different Paths. As always, you can head over to yellowwood.ie for any other information. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner, provider of executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organization.